You know, it's easy to read the stories of both the Old and the New Testaments and assume that the saints whose lives are treated there were of a different kind than we are. That somehow maybe their faith was greater, their integrity higher, uh, their commitment and zeal to Jesus and the work of the Lord was deeper, but that would actually be a misunderstanding. They're ordinary people just like you and me. And last week in Romans 4, Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, led us back to Abraham and his faith and how there were actually two sets of hope existing in his heart and his wife Sarah's. Hope, remember, is just simply an expectation of some kind. And, and there's strong hope, and you've probably experienced that, and there's weak hope, and we might even say there's you know, all but no hope, which would be very faint. But hope, at the end of the day, is just an expectation of something. Now, biblical hope is an expectation, a confident expectation, that good is on its way. And not just any good, but ultimately good from the hand of God. And last week, as we looked at Romans 4 and the example of Abraham, the the first hope that he was dealing with was based on his human considerations. And remember, at a particular time in his life, at the age of 75, God came to him and said, I want you to move from your homeland to a place that I'll show you. And then as God was moving him out and giving him instructions, he promised him that there would be a son born to him and to Sarah, and through that son, his Uh, future generations would be like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea. But Abraham began to consider his own life, and 24 years after that initial promise had given at the age of 99, the Lord returns to him and says, about a year from now, Sarah will have a son. Well, there's less hope for them at that particular point, and Romans even says, and I think almost somewhat humorously, he considered his own body, and then we have that little parenthetical thought, as good as dead. And he considered his own wife's womb and her barrenness through all those years of marriage. And humanly speaking, there really was no reason to hope. As a matter of fact, the human hope at that point was just, you know, we'll, we'll have to figure out another way. But Romans tells us he hoped against hope. And so there's a different set of hopes that were forming, a different expectation. And that hope, that expectation was founded in the promise of God. And as Abraham continued to meditate upon the promise of God that had been given to him at the age of 75, reinforced at several significant points, and all the way up to this point of 99, that hope uh, that was based on the promise of God actually just expelled from his heart the human hopes. And Romans tells us that as he hoped against hope, he actually gave glory to God. He did not waver in his faith because he considered that God himself was faithful. And there's a Hebrews, a passage in Hebrews that runs parallel that actually says Sarah also was confident. Both of them together confident, though humanly speaking, there, was, there really was no reason to hope, but God had given the promise and they considered him to be faithful and powerful and God did give them a son. Now those stories are given not just that we might learn a few moral uh, principles from them. I mean, God's not in the business that Aesop was in. Just derive a few little helpful things No, God is revealing himself to us and he actually intends to lead each of us down a very similar 
uh, pathway of faith because ultimately he wants to bring you to the place that he brought Abraham and Sarah, bring you to a place not only where your faith is mature, your character has been tested, your endurance is proven, but that you actually enter the glorious presence of God and are a sharer in that glory. And we need to carry those thoughts out of chapter four into Romans five today. Otherwise, we'll just kind of compartmentalize this really powerful portion of scripture, but you can't compartmentalize it. It just keeps flowing. So I I take a few minutes to bring you up to speed again, get you kind of like back in gear from a few thoughts out of Romans four so that when we begin reading in Romans five, and I want you to open your Bibles to Romans five, And if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, this is found on page 942. The letter to the Romans is a New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul. And as we begin, and I want you to follow along as I read the first 11 verses, Paul says, therefore, and that's why I took time to go back to Abraham and Sarah in the end of, of Romans 4. In light of all that, And in particular, if we go back to verses 24 and 25, these things were written for our sake, not just Abraham's and Sarah's. And here's the promise, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul's fast forwarding to present day with the Romans. And if he were here, he'd say, and it's good for you too. Those things were written so that you might understand the way of faith the way that leads to justification by faith alone. Now chapter five, verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Now, Father, as we open your word again, we do so with expectation that you will speak, that your spirit will guide, that you will protect us from our own foolish conclusions, that you will shield us from our adversary who delights to steal away the seed of truth, and that you would allow us to enter into your truth and your grace that we might know and experience the power of Christ, the power of his love, the power of his resurrection, 
the power of his grace. Do all your holy will so that you alone would receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have peace with God. How is that possible? In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has been actually laying out a case to say all are under sin both the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and when we say righteous, we mean the religious ones and the non-religious, all under sin. And because we're all under sin, we're all under wrath. Remember that? Those are hard passages to work through because you know we, we love each other and you kind of look around and you're like, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, I may not be perfect, but really? And, and before the great tribunal of God, there are none who can stand in his presence and say, well, let me, let me tell you about my righteousness and what I've done and you know, please don't be angry with me. No, God actually is angry to the point of storing up wrath, but he hasn't poured it out on us fully yet. That's also part of Paul's uh, uh, letter to, to the Romans. In patience, he waits that both the religious and non-religious would come to the place where they recognize their sin, are willing to repent of it, and find forgiveness in God, and that work that he does justifying us, remember those legal terms where he declares sinners to be righteous for Christ's sake, that's what's in view here now when Paul says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. Can you imagine moving from a place of, of imminent doom and wrath to peace? When Paul puts this in front of us, we, we really should pause and marvel. Peace is a word that for many of us, we, we think in terms of a feeling that we have. And it's, it's good and legitimate to use it in that way. And you might say, oh, it was such a, a peaceful day at the beach. Yeah, a lot of us could use a peaceful day at the beach. I was talking with one of our families who went there recently, and I'm happy for them, but part of me is jealous. But we're not talking about peaceful feelings. We're actually talking about circumstances that are wholly reversed. Years ago, when I, um, when I was in college, I spent four, parts of four summers working with a wilderness camp for troubled youth. And part of the two-week program uh, that, that uh, the camp had developed for uh, about, we usually had 12 teenage boys who would come, many of them from rural parts of Mississippi, and they would be bussed up to northern Georgia where our base camp was situated, and then for 14 days we would, we would take them outdoors. And the first week was backpacking in beautiful uh, Smoky Mountains in one particular area, the Shining Rock Wilderness area, and we, we basically did a big figure eight, but those kids were as lost as they could be. You know, for starters, many of them had grown up in the flatlands of Mississippi, so even those mountains were impressive. I can only imagine what they would have thought here in the West. And there, was, there were beautiful summits, and there were deep uh, valleys in, in that massive canopy uh, of forest in the east. There was so much variety and terrain uh, to be enjoyed, even temperature variations. And in the middle of the summer, we camped, and this is high for the east, but you know, out here, I know you'll kind of like laugh a little bit into the back of your hand or whatnot, but you know, we camped over 6,000 feet. Well, when you live about 900 feet of elevation, 6,000 feet, I mean, that's a big gain and it would get freezing cold and all of that. Well, there was one stretch of trail that we usually hit Thursday afternoons right after lunch, and it, and it took up this beautiful section, but it was so steep on either side. You really needed to stay on the trail, and not that you would fall to your death, but you would certainly fall to injury if you stepped off the trail, and it was, it was several miles across this steep, steep uh, portion. The worst fear was to get caught in a thunderstorm on that stretch. And uh, summertime in southern Appalachia, there's a strong likelihood you're going to 
face them. And I remember one day I was with my, my group of teens and uh, we would usually leave out different groups, you know, about 30 minutes apart just to space out on that little section. And I was with my group and I, I could see it and hear it coming from the west. And the sky grew dark and the, the rumbling got closer and closer. And when we were right almost halfway between our lunch spot and the ultimate destination, it broke loose. And I mean the flash of lightning and the roar of thunder was simultaneous. And, it, and there's no place to go. I mean, we could have turned around to go to our lunch spot, but it was as far back to that place as it was ahead. And as I said, we're walking on a really steep place. I, you could try to get off the side of the trail, but to what avail? You know, to tumble to your death? And I'd rather take my chances, you know, being a moving target. You know, and we, we had some of that training, and I told the boys, if the hair on the back of your neck stands up on end, you know, just drop to the ground, you're dead anyhow. But, um, <laughs> and I'm hiking, and I'm as scared as my campers, but trying to act like I'm not. And that storm seemed like it just hovered over us. It was probably minutes. It seemed like hours. And with every flash of lightning and immediate crash of thunder, you know, you just would catch your breath again and say, well, it didn't hit me. Not yet. And we were under cover of trees, which gives you a, a false sense of security. You know, because, I mean, lightning travels down trees. You all know stories. But we actually, we just kept walking, drenched, freezing cold at that particular point and eventually the storm moved off to the east in the distance and, and as it continued to travel the rumbling got quieter and quieter and then the sun came out birds began to sing and it was a totally different environment you need to picture something like this in Romans 5 we've moved through those early chapters of Romans where the fury of God's wrath hangs over our heads and rumbles because we really are sinners Lightning flashes, as it were, and we should be struck dead at any given moment. But God in mercy has caused that storm and fury of his wrath to move off to the east. And now what Paul is saying is, because we're justified by faith, we have peace. It's not just a feeling. It's, it's an environmental change that he is talking about. Peace with God. How can this be? Well, he's actually going to walk us through some, some important truths here. So our outward situation has changed from wrath to peace. Now look at the next phrase, though. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is going to remain central for us, right? And that, actually, that little phrase, through Jesus or through him or, or some variation of it, is going to appear multiple times in the chapters ahead, but we'll, we'll cover those over the next several weeks. But now look at verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So now he's, he's, he's adding grace on top of that layer of peace. We have a real circumstantial change of peace with God. He's no longer angry. His wrath is not boiling over us, ready to be poured out because of what Christ has done. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. Now again, we, we sometimes think of grace um, as denoting the manner in which God deals with us, and that's true. He is gracious toward us, but Paul is actually using this term to describe a particular state. So it's not in like a new state of peace after wrath. Now there's grace, and we might say grace after what? You know, if you think about most of life, 
really, it, we know a, a realm of performance-based standing, don't we? It started in school. And some of you began to learn really early that grades were based on your performance. Rank in class was based on performance. Think of, of sporting events, whether it be the, the pickup game in the backyard where you line up against the fence as kids and you appoint two captains and they start going. And, and sometimes you realize, man, I, I'm like the last dude picked. Why am I last? Because your performance doesn't measure up to the kids who are ahead of you. And that's a painful reality, isn't it? No, nobody wants to like be the last kid who's picked. And so some of you worked really hard to improve your performance. So at least you could be a mid-round pick. It's painful. Well, it's not only backyard pickup games. Some of, uh, we've got some young people here who've tried out for sports teams and whatnot in high school, and it's disappointing when the coach doesn't put your name on the list. Fine arts is that way. You measure up, you, you play enough right notes or sing enough notes on pitch, you know, you get a high score. You miss the notes, you don't put in the kind of practice, you get a low score. Then you come to the real world where you got to get a job and lo and behold it's performance based you do what your boss asks you to do you keep your job you don't do it you lose your job you do your job really well you might be advanced performance based see that's the realm we're used to and even religion tends to push us down that road and you think of all the religions of the world and how many of them ultimately put the pressure back on the individual to perform at a high enough level where god is pleased or the gods are satisfied or you know the the guru pronounces some kind of blessing over you and life is good it's performance based but now paul is saying through him, that is through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith, not by performance, by faith into this grace, this realm of grace in which we now stand. What a game changer. Peace with God and also a standing that's based on God's grace and favor, not my performance. Finally, good news. Finally, I may not be the kid who's not even picked for the backyard game. God is saying, I pick every one of you who come to me in faith. My grace is what will rescue you. So it's a realm of grace, and look at what happens now. It produces hope in future glory. Next phrase, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now again, we gotta reach back into Romans one and two in particular and grab some thing, and three and grab some things and, and bring them forward. You remember how we were, how we were studying the, Paul's words um, that we've all come short of the glory of God? And, and that had to do with the fact that we're sinners. God demands perfection. We try as hard as we might, we're gonna come up short every time. We come short of the glory of God. Romans 1 also said that many people, and, and some of you are included in this right now, some of you have been there, we all understand it, but remember Romans 1 also said that when we knew God in his glory for who he was, we did not regard him as God, we weren't thankful, but we actually exchanged the glory of God for images like us or created things. So we not only fall short of the glory of God, we exchange the glory of God for cheap trinkets and substitutes, as it were. But now in this work that God is doing, this realm of God's grace produces a real hope, a confident expectation that we ourselves will share in God's glory. Oh, what, what an amazing and remarkable thought. The Apostle John said in his first letter, 
we will see God in his glory one day. And in that moment, we will be changed into glory. We will see him as he is. Uh, there are other scriptures that will come to in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that tell us we will be glorified with Christ. We will be sharers in glory with him. Romans 8, verse 21 says, even creation itself, the, the, the environment that we enjoy so much and we're concerned about and will it overheat and the population of planet Earth be, be destroyed? Well, not according to Scripture, at least not in that way. But Paul actually says in Romans 8, 21, even creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Oh, what a difference this grace makes. What difference does such a hope make for us when the headlines continue to read as they do? Listen, it, it pulls us above it and gives us a perspective that says there's more to your existence than what you see and know and experience right now. This truth causes us to lift our eyes to a future point. Well, here's a second thing. It's not only a realm of God's grace that produces hope and future glory. It, this realm of God's grace redeems our present suffering. This would sound crazy to many people. Look at verse three with me. More than that, that is more than this hope of future glory, seeing God in his glory, sharing in it with Christ. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's present day. What? Have you people lost your minds? Paul, are you crazy? Well, let's let him explain. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. We'll pause right there for a second. That term he uses for suffering refers to all kinds of suffering. It's not even necessarily a spiritual form of suffering. It has to do with any kind of oppressive state, whether physical or mental or social or economic, any pressure or distress that you feel on your soul. And ultimately, all of that stress and pressure is a result of sin, isn't it? It all ties back. It doesn't mean that you have committed sin, so therefore you suffer. No, we, we sometimes suffer unjustly because other people have sinned. But how can suffering like what we are experiencing at this moment be a good thing, let alone produce rejoicing? As Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings or we boast in our sufferings. Well, here it comes. Suffering produces endurance. You see, God is using this work to produce in us, first of all, the, the power, capacity to withstand hardship. So that stress is being used by God or redeemed, if you will, to grow you and change you. Second of all, that endurance produces something else for us, and that is character. That's the quality of being proven individually. You become dependable and reliable because of what you have endured uh, and what you have suffered. And that ultimately produces hope, a confident expectation for good. We're talking biblical hope now. You say, wait a second, is God just kind of a bully that he'd set us up like this and say, yeah, your life stinks, it's hard, you're suffering, uh, but let me like put a little, you know, kind of tag over top of it to give you some hope in it. No, he's serious about this. He's serious about it in your life in the same way he was about Abraham and Sarah. What was their suffering? Well, childlessness was the big one. That, that was a huge cultural reproach in that particular day. Even in our day, some of you have dealt with it. You feel it. It's, it's a painful reality. It's a form of suffering. They also suffered other hardships along the way, and, and God was using that suffering in their lives to produce endurance, which ultimately produced character, which brought them to a point at the end of their days where they were people full of hope. You know, everybody really does get this concept. 
All of you do. As a matter of fact, some of you actually pay big bucks for other people to put you under pressure and stress, a kind of suffering, because it's been demonstrated to you that there are powerful benefits on the other side of that suffering. Long-term benefits, health benefits. You say, what are you talking about? It's called a gym membership. (laughs) And some of you pay outrageous sums of money so that you can show up at an outrageously early hour and another person says, all right, get under the bar. You're going to lift this weight today. And you're like, sweating, aching. You walk up the next day or wake up the next day and you're like, oh, I cannot believe I did that CrossFit routine yesterday. But you're also hoping your you know, fellow employee or neighbor or friend or family member is like, oh, wow, that's so impressive. You did that? Oh, yeah, it's killer. You're glorying in your suffering, but you're not an idiot completely because it really is good for you, isn't it? The, health, the long-term health benefits of that kind of strain and pain and suffering yield something that if you just sit around and, you know, watch your favorite television show, and as good as Lay's potato chips are, and no, you can't just eat just one, I mean, that, that's going to do a, a different kind of work in your body. And you know, God's looking at the long-term picture and saying, I, I want you to experience glory. And part of coming to that place of glory is learning to trust me in all things to where you really have hope. You know, if we could interview Abraham and Sarah right now at this moment and say, was it worth it? They'd smile and say, absolutely. I'm sure that there were points in their lives where they thought, a child is not only what we long for, it really is what we need. Why, God, why won't you give us that thing right now? Because God's saying, the child is coming. I've already given you the promises because I actually need to grow your endurance and your character and I actually need to grow your hope. But none of that grows if you don't suffer along the way. I love how the word of God and this gospel of peace and grace really does give us perspective on some of the hard stuff that we can't fully explain right now. And you know, God didn't show up and give Abraham and Sarah a full explanation through those 25 years before Isaac arrived as to why. But he did show up enough times and reinforce the promise that their hope would grow. And while he made them wait, they were growing in endurance and character. Do you think Abraham and Sarah would rewrite any part of their story? No, not on your life. And you know, one day when you're in the presence of God and you can look back with, with faith that has become sight, and even your hope that it has now become reality, and look back on that, you will praise God for his wisdom and say thank you for all that you did. Now, why is this true? We'll go back to the text. Verse five tells us hope does not put us to shame. You're never gonna be disappointed as you follow with the Lord. And here's why. Because, first of all, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God pours out, floods us, if you will. I mean, we're not talking about just like a little, you know, eight-ounce serving. We're talking about fire hydrant open and just flooding your soul with his love. Now, I know reality is for many of us this morning, you'd say, but I don't feel his love right now. I'm not actually sure God loves me. As a matter of fact, there's been so much hurt and hardship, and I I relate to that suffering thing. I'm not sure I'm buying this explanation that that's actually going to yield growth and endurance and character and and lead to a place of, of hope that is not ashamed. 
God loves me, really? And we'll look at how Paul unfolds this particular truth. This pouring out is most extravagant and it is a most abundant flooding. And he says it's through the Holy Spirit. So that tells you it's a, it's a spiritual kind of flood. See, we would measure God's love in terms of uh, material possessions, enough money to pay all the bills, health to enjoy this life, you know, family and friends around me. We, we would tend to measure God's love in terms of some actually very temporary things, but God, that, that, that's not where God pours out his love. And furthermore, this flood, because of its spiritual nature, that it comes through the Holy Spirit, and then we'll get to the, the substance of that love in just a moment, is designed by God to actually wash away the skepticism and cynicism of our hearts toward God. This flood is designed to expel from our hearts our doubts and fears and uncertainties as he immerses us in his love. Now, what is the evidence of, it, of this extravagant, heart-flooding love of God that the Spirit gives? Well, look at where he goes, verse six. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The Lord hangs a backdrop uh, against which his remarkable love becomes all the clearer. And what's, let's talk about the backdrop first of all. There are three words that describe it. While we were weak, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies. What does it mean that we were weak? It's not just physical strength. It's not the way you enter the gym before you begin that series of, of workouts, okay? No, we're actually talking about a, a moral strength that's in view here. It's an incapacity for us to do the kind of perfect good that God requires and demands. While we were incapable of obtaining and attaining righteousness and holiness, while we were weak, Christ died. Second description that helps us understand the backdrop, while we were still sinners. That's a term that re refers to those who were just disobedient to God's commands. And again, God requires perfect obedience. And not only were we disobedient to God's commands, we were neglectful of our duties toward him. It's not even like we were trying and just failing, but there were oftentimes we're like, I don't care about it. No, I'm not interested in, in serving you, loving you with all my heart, honoring you, loving my, my wife, my children, my neighbors with all my heart. No, I'm living today for me. Get out of my face, God. See, that'd be an example of, of a sinner. And then the third description is while we were enemies. That is, while we were hostile to God, hating him, actually. But here's what happens next. That's the backdrop against which he hangs this brilliant display. And, and when I say brilliant, I don't mean like smart brilliant. I mean brilliant in its glory. At the center stage of this, in, in all its splendor, God positions Christ on the cross. He died for the ungodly, verse six. Verse eight says, Christ died for us. Verse 10, reconciled to God by the death of Christ. And remember, reconciled just means be, re, being restored to favor, being restored to a, a right relationship or favorable relations with God. That's why we were singing earlier, there's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide, where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing down at the cross. That is the definitive expression of God's love. There is nothing greater that God could do to flood your soul with his love than to point to the cross and say, look at my son, my one-of-a-kind son. While you were morally incapable 
of even choosing me, wanting to do right, really. In, when you were in that condition, Christ died. When you were a rebel, disobedient to me, neglectful of your duties, he died. While you were an enemy, hostile toward me, blaspheming my name as Paul was. And Andrew, thank you for reading 1 Timothy 1. That testimony of Paul has always been gripping to me. And this God loves to save sinners. You say, how do I know that Jesus loves me? The cross. What's the effect? Look at verse nine. Much more. If, if God would do that for you and me when we were in that condition, now that we've been justified by faith, so this is true for some of you here. Some of you haven't entered this realm yet by faith. God's calling you right now. I, I hope, I'm hoping you're responding even, even now saying, oh, I want that. God, would you do that? Would you forgive me for my sins? For those who take that step of faith, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You know, I, I lived a number of years as a true follower and believer in Jesus Christ, but fearing the wrath of God. I didn't have all this gospel stuff sorted out in my head. And thankfully, I mean, there were several people that God used, but an uncle, one uncle in particular, who just sat me down one day was like, Danny, Jesus took all the wrath on the cross. There's no wrath left for you. Like, yeah, aren't we gonna stand before Jesus one day? Well, yes, and the quality of your works will be tested. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And some of the stuff you've done, Paul likens to wood, hay, and stubble. That burns up in the fire. But other things that you've done for the Lord will be like precious, pre, uh, precious metals and gems. And they can stand the test of fire. Gold's actually refined when you put it in the fire, but it doesn't burn up like wood or hay or stubble. But in my mind, I was living like, oh, day's coming, God's wrath is coming. Not for a child of God, because Jesus took it all on himself at the cross. So much more, if God did that for you while you were in that condition prior to justification by faith and reconciliation, how much more shall you be saved from wrath to come? Then look at verse 10. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? I think every one of the, almost every line we sang earlier can be tied into Romans where we are right now, or stuff that's coming. And one of those things when we sang before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to uh, intercede or pray for me. Well, that's exactly one of the things that Paul is gonna get at later. We don't, I'm only mentioning it this morning when he says he'll save you right now by his life. You know, Jesus lives, but he's just not like, killing time until the rest of us get there. No, he is actively saving you and me at this very moment. And one of the ways he's doing it is he prays for us. Wouldn't you love to hear the prayers of Jesus for you today? I would. Because I can't hear him with these ears. I might read a passage like John 17 and go, he's probably praying things like that. Yeah, he probably is. But he is actively saving his people right now. So that's part of what Paul is getting at here in verse 10. And then he says, more than that, we rejoice in God. So it's the third time he's used the rejoice word. We, we rejoice um, in, in hope of the glory to come. We rejoice in our sufferings because God is redeeming all of that for us. But now verse 11, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're boasting. You know, when we sing these hymns of praise, that we're doing that. And isn't it interesting, again, another little contrast and comparison, we went all the way back to chapter three, and what was it, verse 17, where Paul says, well, what then, where then is boasting? And remember he said, well, that kind of boasting is excluded, because we didn't come together today to boast about our works and our commitment and our zeal and our sacrifice. 
The gospel excludes all of that. There's no room for that anymore because Jesus is the hero. And so now we just pile all this up. You've come into this realm of peace. The, oh, this almost doesn't seem appropriate to say it, but because of the story, that helps us remember. The thunderstorm of God's wrath has, has moved off to the east. It's no longer a threat, and now the sun has broken out. We really have been brought into a state or circumstance of peace. We've been ushered into a realm of grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the future hope of glory that we will not only see in God, but share with him by faith. And now it culminates here at, at, at the end of this next paragraph, verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. God did all this and he's no longer angry with those who repent of their sins and believe. He says, come be restored. Come. Isn't this a glorious gospel? So it's not on you to stay on that performance treadmill. God's not waiting until you improve your skills to pick you. He's not sitting there like a judge of a fine arts competition saying, play all the gospel notes right, and I'll give you a good grade. No, in every part of that, he's saying, I'm taking your failing grades away. That's forgiveness. And I'm replacing that massively failing report card with the perfect record of Jesus. Here's the gift. That's why we sing, I owe all to you. I owe all to you. He's done what you and I could never do. And it's the joy of his heart. Aren't you thankful for this God? And all of that is loaded into that first little verse. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. So let the nations rage. Let the politicians bark. Let the protesters do their thing. But may God's people rest. Would you bow your heads with me, please? The invitation went out at the very outset. Come, all you weary. Come, all you thirsty. Come to the well that never runs dry. Drink of the water. Come and thirst no more. God invites you into this flood. Flood of love and abounding grace and astonishing peace. Come, find his mercy. Taste his goodness. Find what you're looking for. How do I know? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to save us. Oh, Spirit of God, save us. Save us until we stand in the presence of God and behold his glory. Till we see Jesus in his risen, exalted glory and until we share in it. While your heads are bowed and you're meditating, praying, I want to invite you to take that next step of faith, whatever it is, and for some of you that would be sharing with another friend how God is changing you and growing you. For some of you, it would actually be a, the first step of genuine faith, and you sense the call of the Holy Spirit in your heart right now. You have this strong urge. The urge is to turn away from your sins and to turn to the Savior. Just, just do it by faith. We're, I'm not gonna call you out right now and we don't make a public scene when this happens. But will you respond in faith? But if you sense the Lord speaking to you, calling you away from your sin, calling you into this peace and grace and love, 
you respond. Faith is your part. Just to say, Lord, I believe. So, Father, we praise you for your word. Oh, dear Son, we praise you for your sacrifice. And sweet Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. We worship you, our one true God. Commit our hearts, our souls, our everything to you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.